0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting today in verse 38. We took a break last week to hear from Pastor Peter Boers about Apex Missions and our calling to have beautiful feet as we're sent out with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like we sent the Four Seas decades ago and they were able to help establish churches, even ones they didn't even know they were helping to establish, like the story we heard this morning. We are to have beautiful Feet, taking the gospel to the world today we're going to return to the gospel of matthew and specifically jesus's sermon on the mount we've been in the sermon on the mount now for a couple different months and we're going to be there for a couple more months it's matthew chapters 5 6 and 7 do you remember what we've learned so far jesus is teaching with extraordinary authority we've asked the question who does he think he is to talk this way. He's gone up on a mountainside and has begun rocking the world of his listeners by teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. We've said that Jesus is turning our world upside down because he's teaching us what God truly values and what God truly wants for us. So really he's turning our world, our upside down world, right side up. And it sounds strange to our ears. It makes us uncomfortable. It it convicts us. It challenges our little kingdoms for example what is the good life what does it mean to flourish according to Jesus the flourishing are those who are needy sad lowly unsatisfied even persecuted and yet those kind of people change the world as they live out being salt and light and bring glory to their father in heaven And now Jesus is teaching us how to live out a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Does this sound familiar? You've been with me for a few weeks? Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Every jot and tittle, every last word he's bringing to fruition, Jesus says that he has come not just as the ultimate interpreter of the law, which he is, a new Moses, But he has come as the ultimate fulfillment of the law. He is the whole point of the law. He's the goal of the law, where the law has always been headed. And now, Jesus is calling his followers, us, to live out a greater righteousness than the righteousness that the Jewish religious leaders were living out before them. And he has given us six examples of that, six illustrations of both how He fulfills the Old Testament and how He wants us to live out this greater righteousness. Scholars call them the six antitheses, but I call them the six what? But I tell you's. Right. This is, a, and here's the sermon title for today. Uh, very creative, I know. But I tell you three. This is the sequel to the sequel. This is the, the uh, thrilling uh, end of the trilogy. But I tell you. Which word carries the most emphasis in that? I. That's right. The Greek is ego delego. And the ego word there is the I. Six times he says that. You have heard it said, but I tell you how it really is. Now that I've come on the scene. Do you remember the pattern? There's a certain pattern that follows for all six of these but I tell you. Do you remember what it is? First he quotes what? From the Torah, right? First he quotes the Torah. Then, secondly, he gives the authoritative explanation of that quotation with all of its messianic meaning. And in that interpretation, he explodes the myths about the popular interpretations that these people have always heard and believed. What they've been taught, often erroneously, by the Pharisees and others. Jesus corrects those and sets everything straight. And really, he's picking a fight with the Pharisees over each one. And then third and lastly, Jesus gives a practical application of this teaching to daily life, which is really an antidote to whatever problem he's addressing. So one, two, three. We've seen that pattern again and again in the but I tell you's. He quotes the law, he gives the messianic meaning, and he gives a practical application to daily life, what it looks like to live out this greater righteousness in real life. And he he always does it with a twist, doesn't he? Jesus is a master teacher, and He's always keeping you on your toes. In fact, He wants you to be a little off balance as He sends you in a new direction. And He drives at our hearts. Right? Have we seen that every single week as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus turns us right side up by changing us from the inside out. And so that our insides and our outsides match. Because the Pharisees didn't. They had some of the outside in place, but they were missing the inside, which is the greater point. Well, today we're going to finish this section of Jesus' sermon. We're going to look at the last two of the but I tell yous, and they are very closely connected to one another. So far, Jesus has told us to repent of our sinful anger as quick as we can, to resolve our conflicts as quick as we can, to do whatever it takes to defeat sexual sin to stay faithful to our spouses if we have them, and to keep all of our promises. You can see how focused he is on our relationships. Just because he's looking at the heart doesn't mean that it stays in the heart. The way Jesus wants our hearts to be will inevitably affect our relationships with others, including with our enemies, our opponents, our adversaries, the people who are against us. That's where Jesus goes with today's teachings. Let me read them to you and then we'll pray and try to discern together what this means for us today. Matthew chapter 5 verses, it should say 38, sorry, through 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you pray with me? It all comes down to that last sentence, doesn't it, Lord? You want us to be perfect. You want us to be whole. The same on the inside as the outside. And all of that, holy. Just like our Heavenly Father is. I pray that you would use this message, this sermon, as we look into your Word, to perfect us. To point us in this direction. You're the master teacher, Lord. We sit at your feet, and we want to hear. Lord, this is high-octane stuff. I am neither worthy nor able to communicate it as it should be communicated. So please, Lord, work around me. Work through me if you can but work around me if you must, to speak this word to our hearts today, because we need it. This is bread for us. This is food. Feed us, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, our teacher, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. So, is it just me, or did Jesus turn it all up another notch? And these last two, but I tell you's, I think Jesus cranks it up to 11. This is how Jesus wants us to be. When we hear this, we hear the word of the Lord. This is our King talking to us. You'll notice that these last two, but I tell you's follow the same pattern. The one, two, three we just talked about. Let's look at the first one. Verse 38 has part 1. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye. And tooth for tooth. Where's that from? Is that, is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's actually taught in at least three books in the first five books of the Bible: the Torah, Exodus twenty-one twenty-four, Leviticus twenty-four nineteen and twenty, and Deuteronomy nineteen twenty-one. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now the big words for that are the lex talionis. There's your Latin lecture for today. Lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation. And a form of the lex talionis appears in other ancient law codes, like the Code of Hammurabi. Do you remember that from your uh, Western Civ class or your, your history class? The Code of Hammurabi. In that law code, it only applied to social equals, those in the same class of society. But in Moses' law, it applies to everybody. An eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a very good thing. It was God's law. It communicated justice, commensurate with the offense. And no more. This kind of law presented a line drawn in the sand that prohibited escalation and blood feuds. You know, if someone from my family knocked out your teeth, You didn't get to grab your family and come and knock out all the teeth in our family. Which we then have to answer with breaking all of your kneecaps. Which you then answered with, you get the idea, right? This law was good. It was supposed to be administered by the judges of Israel. The punishment fits the crime. And no more. And it wasn't something personally administered. It was administered by the judges of Israel. This was not for establishing a personal vendetta and carried out with a vengeance. That's how we tend to think of it, right? Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Why do we think that? Because that's what they started doing with it. That's how they were using it. They had used these words to justify vindictiveness. Come on, let's get your eye. Let's Let's pay him back. Let's get that tooth. Let's get what's coming to you. And it was all perfectly legal. Except that it wasn't perfect. And it really wasn't legal. It wasn't what the law was ever intending to do with that. Do you see how the Pharisees thought that the law was easy here to follow? Okay, do not murder. Check. Do not commit adultery. That's a little bit harder, but sure, check. And then take what's coming to you. If someone takes something from you, demand that they lose the same thing. Boy, this righteousness is easy. Was that what God's law was driving at? Not according to the Messiah. Look at verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. The Messiah, the whole point of the law has arrived. He's come on the scene and he says to not retaliate. To not resist, to not fight them and get yours back. Here's point number one of three this morning. Give to your takers. Give to your takers. That's a surprise, isn't it? We don't hear that message very often in our culture. You know that there are, in this life, there are givers and there are takers, right? Which ones are we supposed to be? Givers, right? And Jesus says we're supposed to be givers even to the takers. Does that sound wrong to you? That's because we're upside down. And it's also because it's not the whole picture. I don't think that Jesus means that we ought to neglect seeking justice. We're called to love justice and seek justice. I don't think he's saying that there's never a time to resist someone who is evil. Jesus resists evil people himself. Remember when he picked up that whip and went through the temple? Turning over tables? Paul resisted Peter. Same word for resisted? To his face in the book of Galatians. And that was a good thing at that point. Just like what he said in verse 34 that we shouldn't take an oath if we're going to do it that way but he really wasn't forbidding all oaths, I think the same thing is happening here. Jesus is going after our hearts. And the kind of hearts that Jesus wants us to have are generous ones, super generous ones, gracious hearts, hearts that go above and beyond what is just and fair. Give to your takers. Our impulse, even when we're wronged, should be generosity. That's the greater righteousness. It's more than just don't retaliate against them. It's seek their good. See, the Pharisees thought, do good to those who do good to you and return evil for evil. Eye for an eye. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Return good for evil. That's how we're going to do it in my kingdom. Does that challenge your kingdom? I know it challenges mine. And then he gives four illustrations. This is that third part where he gives practical application. Jesus gives them four illustrations of this principle of super generosity. I don't know how literally we're supposed to take them. But we're all supposed to take them very seriously. Look at verse 39. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is not a fight. It's an insult. It's probably a superior giving a subordinate a backhanded cuff. Right hand to right cheek. Probably legal, but very shaming to the person who receives it. Now, if somebody did that to you, how would you feel like responding? I saw a cartoon yesterday on Facebook when I was writing this sermon. I was like, thank you, Lord. The cartoon said it had a teacher asking the students... If you have ten cookies and someone takes away half of them, what will they have? And the answer was, a broken hand. <laughs> That's what we feel like doing. Well, what does Jesus say? Smile. Show him the other cheek. He probably won't know what to do with it. Be the bigger person. Don't descend to their level. Do you see how this takes a strong person to do it? strong on the inside to do this. This isn't saying to be a doormat and just put your head down and let people abuse you. This isn't saying that at all. This is saying that where you could retaliate in kind, you go out of your way to be generous. You don't get even. You be a blessing. Verse 40. Jesus says that if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, you owe him money. And he wants to take the clothes off your back. Go ahead. Give him all your clothes. That's what he says. I don't think he's being literal here. He's not saying run around naked. He's using hyperbole and humor, but he's really serious in his point. Go beyond what you have to do. Yeah. So this guy is a taker. So what? Go ahead and give it to him. Verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. I almost hear Jesus saying it like in that tone of voice. Go with him two miles. Now who could conscript you to do that? A Roman soldier could, right? The occupying force. They could commandeer a Jew to be a pack mule for a mile. Jesus says, so you owed him a mile, give him two. That'll teach him. Don't stand on your rights. Don't be spiteful and bitter but be helpful. I think Paul is building on this in Romans 12 when he says overcome evil with good. Right? He's got to as his message. Be large-hearted. Not stingy. Verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. Give to the taker. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, uh, even if they don't deserve it? Sure, go ahead, do it. Even if you don't think you'll get it back, can you afford it? Yeah, go ahead. Even if they're your enemy and they're asking you for money, why not? Don't be always asking, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this transaction? Just be generous. Now I can hear you thinking right now. I mean like the whole room. I, can, I see you looking at me and I can hear the, like the smoke's coming out of your ears. I know this raises all kinds of questions. I didn't finish the sermon until 11.30 last night because I was asking those questions myself all day long. Christians have debated how this plays out in personal ethics for 2,000 years. Some have taken Jesus' words very literally. And that has borne some really good fruit. Have Have you heard some of the stories about people doing this sort of thing and the amazing effect it had on the people that were trying to take from them? Amazing stories. It's also created some difficult situations. I don't think that we're supposed to use these as a new law to follow as if we give just one more cheek and then insult back, or one set of clothes and then say no more, or one more mile but never two more miles, or always give to something, always give something to a taker. These aren't absolutes. They're a direction. He's pushing you off balance and pushing you in a new direction. He is aiming at your heart. And instead of having hearts that are bitter and angry and vengeful and bent on getting our vindication, Jesus wants us to have super generous hearts that go above and beyond what is necessary. Why? Because that's the kind of heart He has, right? So I don't think He's saying that we can't take evasive or defensive action. He isn't calling anyone to submit to physical abuse. He isn't saying that we don't get the authorities involved if there's a threat or a crime. He isn't saying that we don't exercise discernment in whom we would give gifts and loans to. Jesus doesn't just do what everybody asks. Watch Jesus go through the Gospels. They're asking him for lots of things and he says no, no. Some of them he says yes to, others he says no to. He knows how to say no. And Paul told the church to not just give money to people who weren't willing to work, right? Jesus isn't saying any of that. Now listen, but don't use those qualifications I just gave you to get out of obeying Jesus. Oh, oh, we don't have to do this. Oh, oh, good. He didn't mean any of that. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus wants us to be super generous even to people who don't deserve it. Don't turn into a Pharisee and say, oh, well, it's not that. Well, then, I guess I'm off the hook. He wants us to trust God's justice and not go grab justice on our own. Yesterday, as I was writing this sermon, I had two fears in preaching this passage. One is that some of you would feel convicted where you shouldn't. And the other is that some of you wouldn't feel convicted when you should. What's your heart saying today? Some of your hearts are saying, I don't get mad. I get even. And some of your hearts are saying, I want to give. Even to the takers. I don't want to do it wrong. I don't want to give to someone in a way that would be bad for them. And I do want justice. I do want things to be as they should be. I want things to be made right again. And what has been taken from me hurts. Truly and rightfully, it hurts. But I don't want to be bitter. I want to be bigger. And I want to be gracious because that's how Jesus is. And I want to love my enemy. Verse 43, Last but I tell you, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where is that in the Bible? Well, love your neighbor is Leviticus 19.18. But where does it say, hate your enemy? Where is that command? Anybody know? It ain't in there. It's natural. Feels good. It feels right. And there's probably even a proper way to do it if you look at your imprecatory psalms but it's no command in the bible they had added this one love your neighbor only they assumed and what did the pharisees say oh easy check boy this righteousness is easy we got that down we love our israelite neighbors we love our neighborhood we love our families we are so friendly but those romans Now, of course, they didn't really love their neighbors, did they? Who is my neighbor? They're going to ask. Try to limit it away so that it's just the people they want to love. I mean, how far do I have to take this? What does Jesus say? It's our hide the word, right? Verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Here's point number two of three this morning. Love your haters. Love your haters. The Messiah who is the point of the law comes on the scene and He says, but I tell you, love your enemies. It's not good enough to just coexist. It's certainly not good enough to just hate those who hate you. You and I are called to love them. To love those who hate us. Friends, I think that's the hardest thing Jesus asks us to do as His followers. Ethically. I think He saved the hardest one for last. We are called to love our enemies... To love our opponents, to love our adversaries, to love those who are out to get us. Now that doesn't mean that we will always like them. In fact, it doesn't mean that we'll always act the same way towards all of them at all times. Love is shrewd. We're still supposed to be wary of our enemies. We're supposed to be as shrewd as serpents around them, but as harmless as doves. We're called to wholeheartedly seek the good of those who want bad for us. That's what it means to love someone. It means to be for them. To actively seek what's best for them. That doesn't mean to always give them what they want. It doesn't. But it does mean to always seek what's best for them. To do 1 Corinthians 13 to them. Even if they're doing the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13 to you. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's really, really hard. But look at what it does. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. It doesn't make you a child of of God to do it, but it shows that you are. Because you bear the family resemblance and you grow up into it as you grow into loving your enemies. This is how God treats His enemies. Right? Verse 45. He causes the Son, His Son, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I love it that it says His Son. Don't you? The Son belongs to God. You look out there and you see that great big ball of flaming gases in the sky keeps us warm. That belongs to God. And in this time period, in this age, while he's being patient with us, God causes that sun to shine on the evil as well as the good. Same thing with the life-giving rain. We call that common grace. God is loving in many ways, even to those who are not his children. He shows us the way every single day. When that sun comes up, it should remind us that he's loving on his enemies, and so should we. He wants more out of us. Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The extortionists? The ones who work for Rome and then shake you down for even more? They love those who love them. I'm not sure who loves a tax collector. At least their moms, right? right? They love their mom. And if you greet only your brothers... What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do you see where he's going? This is the greater righteousness. He's telling the Pharisees that their righteousness is at the same level as the most notorious sinners in the town. Good job. Way to go there, Pharisees. You love your families. Well, so do the tax collectors. You love the people who love you. Good job. So do the pagans. That's not righteousness. Not like what I want from my people. Jesus is calling his followers to love more, to love deeper, to love those who hate them. And not just in words, but in actions, like prayer, and greetings, and a whole host of other things. How are you doing at this one? When I say enemy, who comes to mind, and are you loving them? Let me apply this to politics today. Some of you think that President Trump is an enemy. He is against you and you are against him. I've read your social media. Others of you think that the Democrats are your enemies. The word liberal is a bad word to you. You're against them and they're against you. I've read your social media. And both kinds of you are in our congregation. And I'm glad. I love that the church of Jesus Christ can transcend human politics. Today I'm not going to argue with either of you about who is the the true enemy, if either. And I'm not going to try to get either of you to politically support the other. I'm just going to ask you this. Are you praying for your enemy? Whomever you consider them to be. They might hate you. But we Christians do not have the option of hating back. We are called to love our haters. And that goes way beyond politics. It goes into every area of life. Who are your enemies? And are you praying for them? Because we're supposed to be the image of our loving Heavenly Father. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that really is the punchline of all of these. All six of the but I tell you's have been leading up to verse 48. The Lord has set the standard for us, and it is perfection. Be perfect like your Father. Now that's a play on the phrase from Leviticus, Be holy for I the Lord, your Lord, am holy. But here Jesus uses the word perfect, which means whole or complete. He's driving at that inside-out thing again. Jesus wants us to be the same on the inside as the outside, not like the Pharisees. Loving on the inside. Pure on the inside. Faithful on the inside. Generous on the inside. Gracious on the inside. So much that it spills out to, out onto the outside and to all of our relationships, even with our enemies. How do we do that? By looking at the Father. Our Heavenly Father. What a phrase. Heavenly Father. And by looking at Jesus Himself. Because He lived all of this out perfectly.